are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up with our reading of step number 15 on purity and chastity. And if you're following along in the text, we are on page 148 at the very top of the page with paragraph 56. Again, for those who just joined, we're on paragraph 56 on page 148. Let no one get into the habit of thinking over during the daytime the fantasies that have occurred to him during sleep. For the aim of the demons in prompting this is to defile us while we are awake by making us think about our dreams. This is a pretty consistent thought and teaching among the fathers, especially when it has to do with dreams or uh, things that have to do with sensuality that are tied to the bodily appetites, that not to go back and analyze them or examine them and, uh, and to be thinking about one's dreams about these things throughout the course of the day, that uh, precisely because they can stir the passions again. And the images that are often tied to these kinds of dreams uh, can uh, awaken those passions to such an extent that we are drawn right back into them once more. And so uh, this is one of those areas, again, where we often aren't thinking that dreams can be so powerful, vivid for us, and at times unusual, uh, that they can captivate the imagination. And so we, we might be drawn back to them throughout the course of the day and, and, and contemplate uh, trying to uh, unpack the meaning of them. And certainly, you know, within uh, therapeutic uh, circles and within a clinical setting, the analysis of dreams has been uh, a part of that work, but it's always within that clinical setting and within the context of the analytic work being done. Uh, within sort of the, the narrative that has developed over the course of time and in the context of one's day-to-day -day life and what is discussed within the analysis. Uh, so it's done in a particular frame and for a particular reason. Uh, but in regards to our spiritual life, John is warning that uh, these kinds of dreams, again, can awaken the passions so that it is best for us uh, uh, especially on our own, not to go back and analyze them or think about them or wonder about them, because then we are often drawn back into the fantasies. They do become this living dream, a daydream 
for us and we can spend a great deal of time and they can even with them and they can even lead to action. Number 57, let us listen again to another while of our foes. Just as food, which is bad for the body, produces sickness after a time or some days, so this often happens in the case of actions which defile the soul. I have seen some give way to luxury and not at once feel the attacks of the enemy. I've seen others eat with women and converse with them and at the time have no bad thoughts whatsoever in their mind. They were thus deceived and encouraged to grow careless and to think that they were in peace and safety and they suffered sudden destruction in their cells. But what bodily and spiritual destruction comes to us when we are alone? He who is tempted knows, and he who is not tempted does not need to know. So this uh, is a great piece of counsel, I think, on the part of John, that we might be unmoved by things that we encounter on any given day or think about on any given day and think that uh, we aren't moved by them or touched by them, and so that we are in a place of safety spiritually. And the demons can use this as a way of drawing us in to allow us to drop down our guard, that uh, we can engage in certain circumstances that put us, put us to the test, again, that are relatively benign, that there's no, nothing overtly sinful, uh, about them. It's just that we are become unguarded in our hearts so that at a later date, it might be days, weeks, months, years later, that we can be drawn into a particular sin because of this lack of vigilance, not guarding our hearts. And the evil one will, will do this if uh, and has this kind of patience, if you would call it that, uh, to wait a long period of time if it can bring a greater fall to an individual. And so for a monk in particular, who's again removed himself from the larger part of, of society, that to uh, engage in conversations with others, in particular with women who they often don't have contact with and uh, begin to become overly familiar, then uh, uh, thoughts and uh, Images of these conversations can come back to mind at another time. And then when one is alone in one cell, John is saying, is when the temptation comes and it can come fiercely and, uh, and stir the, the sexual passions as well. And so this might seem extreme to us, but I think anyone who uh, has had this happen uh, would find it quite familiar. I mean, I think sometimes we take it for granted and we are... Uh, so often lacking in uh, the vigilance in terms of the things that we expose ourselves to on a day-to-day -day basis, that maybe this seems to be uh, a bit extreme. Uh, but uh, if we are guarding the heart, then anything that has even the potential to draw us down a particular path, we have to be uh, guarded against. And, uh, and certainly, again, with those passions that are tied to bodily appetites in particular, or that stir the imagination, or that lead the fantasies have to be watched particularly well. Any thoughts or comments so far on either of these paragraphs? Okay. Number 58. 
On these occasions, the best aids for us are sackcloth, ashes, all night standing, hunger, moistening the tongue and moderation when parched with thirst, dwelling amongst the tombs and above all, humility of heart. And if possible, a spiritual father or zealous brother or one spiritually mature to help us. For I shall be surprised if anyone will be able by himself to save his ship from the sea. So he, uh, he offers us here some aids that humble the body uh, and uh, make us more attentive to what's going on interior, interiorly and also humble the mind, slow the thoughts that uh, we are able to pray uh, with greater attention. Uh, so sackcloth, ashes, you know, certainly uh, raising our minds to uh, uh, certainly our bodies, but in, in such a way as to mortify them, to remind oneself uh, of one's own death, all night standing, so uh, keeping oneself vigilant in posture even, and the mortification of that uh, can help keep a person's thoughts uh, focused on prayer, hunger, so fasting, moistening the tongue. So again, this is something everybody's walking around these days with water bottles in hand, fearful that we are going to become parched and dehydrated. And uh, uh, it's sort of ridiculous. I mean, it is funny. There was a while there we were paying more for a bottle of water than we were for a, a, a gallon of gasoline. And, uh, and I think we've taken uh, this to extremes in the sense of needing to stay hydrated uh, to such an extent that most we spend most of our time running to the bathroom uh, because of it. But uh, it doesn't aid us, certainly, I think, in the spiritual life that uh, as an appetite, thirst is like that of hungering for food. And so disciplining oneself, even in this regard, uh, can be helpful, mortifying oneself and uh, dwelling amongst the tombs. So again, the remembrance of death, of our own mortality, of not seeking uh, to self-console in the things of this world or in ourself and lose, losing sight of the eternal life that has been made possible for us. Uh, and above all, humility of heart. So this uh, acknowledgement of the truth of our own weakness, that despite our vigilance and despite these ascetic practices, that we can never be under the, again, the illusion that we are free from them, or that somehow that the evil one is incapable of tempting us to them, even though we are rather spiritually mature. Uh, and, uh, and so part of this humility, he tells us, is seeking out a spiritual guide. And if not a spiritual guide, then a confidant, a spiritual brother who's seeking holiness of, of life as well. Uh, that uh, the image here is, is a good one, that by, so no one is able by himself to save his ship from the sea. Uh, this battle is not one that is won in isolation. And this is why, or part of the reason why, that uh, the fathers weren't quick to encourage people to embrace the, the life of solitude. Uh, that when one falls in a community, again, there's someone there to raise you up and encourage you 
If someone is listening in isolation and falls into one of these sins, they can fall into desolation and despair and give up on the, the spiritual life altogether. Uh, Louise, there are a couple comments here. Uh, dwelling among the tombs, I responded to. Louise writes, they are uh, suckling, not the breast, but a bottle nonetheless. Right, the water bottle. It's true. I mean, it's, there's a kind of comfort in that that we we take and it seems like such a simple thing but to have it in hand uh, always seems to be important with us and uh, being around the university campuses you see everybody has one of those uh, like indestructible ones tied to their backpack that holds like a half a gallon of water and uh, you're wondering if they're hiking up Mount Everest uh, with them but uh, we, we can have again an over concern. Anthony writes, St. Anthony the Great and St. Benedict were both assaulted by vivid images. Uh, it seems they are examples of struggle against the violence of images. I think one of the desert mothers in Cletica has a saying or two about this for women as well. Uh, right, and you know, the violent nature of these in, in the sense of how uh, swiftly they can come upon us and uh, the fierceness of, of them and, and the sense of the number of them can be great. There's a great painting, I think, of Anthony's temptation in particular. If it's, I don't know if it's by Michelangelo, where he's actually elevated in the air, uh, being attacked by uh, a multitude of demons. And our thoughts can be like that. Uh, waves uh, at times so fierce that even in the midst of our prayer and calling out to God, they can be relentless. And uh, so again, this is where, where humility of heart comes into play. And uh, not only in relying upon uh, a spiritual elder, but relying upon the sacramental life. Uh, again, Philip Neary, uh, I've often mentioned, said there is no chastity without the Holy Eucharist. That it's only by nourishing ourselves upon uh, his body and blood that we uh, are able to uh, have his strength. His virtue becomes our virtue. Uh, his faith becomes our faith. And, uh, and the strength of our prayer grows as well in that union and communion. Uh, so we begin to engage in this battle, not just on a natural level, but on a supernatural level. And calling out upon the saints as well, I think in the midst of this has uh, uh, been said to be of uh, an essential nature. Philip said to make oneself a beggar in these moments, to go from saint to saint, asking their intercession. And, um, and again, I think in our piety, perhaps we, we uh, have lost a sense of this, you know, of the importance of patron saints, one guardian angel uh, that, uh, you know, Marian devotion is still pretty strong, but I, I think uh, in, in many quarters, but I, I think this sense of the communion of saints and seeking that our intercession does not seem to be quite as strong. And uh, it's something I think we need to really foster. Philip, again, Philip Neary, I keep bringing him up, but we often have his priests preach about the saints of the day to be sure in their preaching that they would incorporate the concrete example, the living faith of the saints, the lived gospel uh, as examples in order to uh, encourage people in their spiritual battle. And uh, perhaps too rarely do we hear 
these examples uh, from the pulpit. Angelo writes, uh, with, I'm sorry, Rory questions, does God communicate through dreams? Well, certainly within the scriptures, we see a number of different examples. Uh, and one very powerful one is that of St. Joseph himself, uh, when he's struggling uh, with uh, the conception of our Lord and whether or not he should distance himself uh, from Mary. And whatever the reason one uh, believes is behind that, you know, some people feel that, you know, his thought was that she had to have conceived by another and but being a just man not wanting to put her in jeopardy that she could potentially be stoned to death, which uh, often was the penalty uh, for this. Uh, but others and many saints think that Joseph actually understood what was happening and that wanted to remove himself from this, that Mary had been espoused, as it were, to the Holy Spirit. And uh, we often assume that Mary and Joseph never talked with each other and that she never shared any of the events surrounding her, uh, the conception of our Lord. And, uh, but uh, there's an image by George Latour, one of his paintings, one of my favorite artists, of Joseph asleep with the scriptures open in his lap. And the image is one of Joseph being worn out physically, emotionally, and spiritually, searching the scriptures uh, for a way to be able to address this without putting Mary in harm's way, and exhausts himself to such an extent that he falls asleep. And there's something very powerful about this that I think points to contemplation and prayer for us. Joseph was a just, righteous man, uh, had a deep piety, and it's in his dreams that uh, all the uh, limitations that we have and the defense mechanisms that we have are dropped. And so Joseph can be presented with what he was unable to wrap his mind around, that Mary had conceived by the Holy Spirit, that, who, that she that he who she bore was the son of God. And so he must remove himself. And so within the context of the dream, where the defenses are dropped, Joseph is told, no, you must be his father. You must name him. You must establish his lineage legally. And you must be the guardian and protector of what is holy and being born into the world. And this is what Joseph does. He's obedient. Uh, uh, to what he's told within the dream. So there is uh, an example and, and other examples within the scriptures, but I think the fathers are consistent in this, that there is a greater danger. You know, Joseph was a, a man pure of heart, of deep piety himself, and uh, it's not as though God cannot communicate to us through these means. Is it the typical way and what is, even if God can and has done so, what is our response as those who are seeking to avoid delusion? And our response is always to put things to the test and not give ourselves over to something that could be a source of temptation for us. Uh, again, bouncing back to Philip Neri, he said, even if you have a vision of the Blessed Virgin, spit on her. And if it is a demon, the demon will dis disappear. And if it is indeed Our Lady, then she is not going to be angered over the fact that you are seeking to put this vision to the test, that it's often through 
these extraordinary things that uh, where we are seeking at times for deeper meaning, that we can be open and become vulnerable uh, to delusion. And I think John's counsel in this regard is wise, that even though God can and has in extraordinary circumstances revealed himself and spoken to individuals through dreams, that our course of action in the spiritual battle is to be ever vigilant, especially with something like this that takes place during one's, when one is asleep. And he's already told us that, you know, it's when we are falling asleep in particular that we become vulnerable, that we let down our guard and uh, we can be more open to suggestion. And Angela writes that Jesus prayer is also a great help. Uh, absolutely. I think the arrow prayers that the fathers speak of, and in particular, the Jesus prayer, uh, and even simply the name of Jesus has a particular power within it. Uh, it's uh, the name that God himself gave his son. And it's calling upon that name uh, that uh, not only drives away the demons, but draws our minds and our hearts to God. And that is the most important thing, uh, that we aren't focusing on the demons or the thoughts of the temptation, but we allow the name of Jesus or the Jesus prayer as a whole to draw the mind and the heart back where it needs to be to God and to ignore the thoughts that come to us, not to wrestle with them. And again, this is why he emphasizes humility, you know, not to get in a verbal battle with the demons. Number 59. One of the one and the same fall often incurs a condemnation a hundred times greater for one person than for another, according to the character, place, progress, and a good deal else. So a person might fall into uh, a sin of the flesh uh, because of, of weakness of deeply rooted habit, even uh, caught up in uh, an unguarded moment. And certainly how th that fall would be seen and how we should see it should be, uh, uh, we, even within ourselves, should be different than something that is premeditated or that uh, arises out of ne negligence on our part in regards to prayer or, again, the things that we expose ourselves to. Uh, we've talked many times here uh, about uh, individuals in our day, especially being uh, subjected to pornography at a very early age in childhood uh, in their most formative years. And so it becomes an addiction very early and often decades of struggle, even when a person hates it and does not want anything to do with it. And so uh, a priest has to be uh, particularly sensitive and, and also follow this counsel of John and being able to discern what is the nature of the sin for the individual? So uh, that you don't drive an individual into shame uh, and into despair, uh, that you can encourage them. Uh, or if a person is driven by a kind of obsessive compulsive pattern of thought or if there's scrupulosity, 
there as well that uh, a priest needs to be able to discern as well as we as individuals uh, what brought about the fall and uh, again I think this is due, uh, best done in the context of spiritual direction and con confession it's hard to see I think uh, what brings about things in our own life with a, a great clarity. And again, this is where humility is needed, our willingness to bring into the light the things that we are struggling with. And if you remember, uh, the disciples of these desert fathers would often come to them at the end of the day and reveal every thought that they had uh, precisely to do that, to bring anything to light that needs to be addressed or where a healing balm needs to be applied. Uh, Eric writes, a bruised reed he shall not break, a smoldering wick he shall not quench. Absolutely, that, you know, the priest should be the gentlest of souls, uh, and, uh, uh, and in particular in the confessional, uh, to have a kind of tenderness uh, in the guidance that is, is offered. Um, one a priest can be direct and if especially if there's negligence involved in offering the guidance that's needed there but never uh falling into pride or giving any sense that there is anger there uh, because i think the priest himself then uh would likely fall into the very same sin if he were to do so but i've known so many individuals who've been driven away uh from uh, confession from receiving Holy Communion because of how they've been treated within the confessional and uh, sometimes rebuked with a, you know such a severe severity and harshness or that they're confessing the, the act of confessing was treated uh, with a kind of flippancy uh, or um, I don't know how to describe it, where a, a priest sort of rushes the individual through their confession where before they have the opportunity to uh, talk about what they've been struggling with. Uh, I've, you know, the priest sometimes can be distracted within the confessional or be, you know, in our day, be on their cell phone or even on a computer. And uh, people can pick up this kind of uh, inattentiveness or even this complete breakdown of the sense of the sanctity uh, uh, or the uh, sacredness of the sacrament itself and not be fully participating in it. It's a graced moment for a priest that it's not only the individual going to confession that is touched by the, the grace of that sacrament, but the priest himself in the very act of participating in it is transformed over the course of time. And I think we see this again in those great saints who spend so many long hours within the confessional that there was something transformative for them of participating in this reconciling of others to God. And this is the priest's primary role in, in that regard uh, to seek to reconcile individuals. And uh, uh, again, if this is abused, you know, we hear what Christ himself says, you know, better if a millstone, the millstone be tied around one's neck than to abuse one of these little ones. Uh, let's see here, Patrick writes, St. John doesn't seem to often caution against attempting ascetical practice, but seems to more uh, to praise them. How does one balance gradually adding more over time 
while balancing a certain level of self-knowledge and identifying if perhaps it may be too much to apply a certain practice. practice. Example, at least from my experience, vigils that impact getting a certain amount of sleep may seem to make fighting against various thoughts the next day more difficult. I suppose this must be discerned on a case-by-case -case basis since it seems nuanced in practice. Uh, yes, definitely nuanced in practice and would depend upon uh, the, the circumstances of a person's life, uh, their work, uh, the impact that that would have upon them. We even see among religious, uh, the saints warning them against taking things up indiscriminately in accord, in accord with their own will, rather than be guided, being guided within the context of spiritual direction to take a discipline upon themselves. And especially when they are corporal disciplines, you know, when they're bodily disciplines where uh, where excess uh, can lead a person to hurt themselves. So fasting to extreme uh, or uh, keeping vigils uh, when the person doesn't have the constitution for it or spiritually they are not prepared for that either. And they can do themselves great damage or to the point where they're unable to pray for a long period of time because they may have made themselves sick in the process of doing so. And, uh, and so, you know, we have to keep in mind that John is already speaking to, to monks who have embraced the ascetic life in great depth, and even in the context of their common prayer, would break the night uh, uh, to, to pray uh, the, the hours. And, uh, and even when one is, enters into a monastery to the, this day, that there is a period where a person is allowed to adjust. And this came up in some previous conversations, but a lot of monasteries uh, do not eat meat. And so if, when an individual enters into a monastery, they aren't going to radically change their diet. They'll make them uh, eat a certain diet over a period of time and gradually make that adjustment until they, they can handle it. And the, the same is true with uh, those night hours uh, that it would be the discretion of the abbot uh, or wh whoever he puts in charge of the, the, the youngest monks to determine whether or not it's fitting for them to participate in that. And again, I think this is where you would want a discerning priest who would not be encouraging people to take, it, take something like this up indiscriminately. Uh, that well, I think what's most important in the ascetic practices is the perfection with which we embrace them in the sense of embracing them with love and trying to do them with as much love as possible. So it's not the quantity or the extreme nature of them, it's how we embrace them. So a person living in the world might certainly say a lot fewer uh, Jesus prayers throughout the course of a day than a monk in a monastery, but said with attention, love, devotion, uh, being conscious of what we are praying, or with fasting, you know, a person might start out with letting go of a meal one day a week, just one meal one day a week, and gradually work with their spiritual director to increase that practice of fasting. But if that's done with love and devotion, then it's going to bear great fruit for them. And, uh, and so, you know, for individuals living in a community, and I think uh, even for spiritual directors, what they are looking for 
uh, in the piety of the individual is this responsiveness to the grace of God and uh, the avoidance of extremes. John and others will talk about taking the middle way in regards to ascetical practices, not falling into neglect, but not swinging in the opposite direction uh, because one, again, will either fall into pride, thinking, well, I can fast for three, three days, three or four days, or uh, one, again, could hurt oneself physically in, in the process, or fall into some great delusion uh, because, because of that pride. And, you know, there are all kinds of, the, the stories of the Desert Fathers are replete with examples of, you know, monks taking that leap off of a cliff you know, because they had some sense that, you know, the, that scripture of the angels coming to protect you, lest you dash your foot against the stone applied to them in particular, and so plunging to their death. And uh, so moderation uh, uh, is, is put forward. Uh, to be honest with you, I think, especially for Western readers, uh, John Cassian, I think is the most balanced and clear writer of the of the uh, early writers, and he brings the wisdom of these Eastern fathers to the West, and is able in his conferences to articulate them uh, with a real beauty, but clarity, precision, and uh, capturing some of the nuances that uh, the, that might not be articulated as clearly in something like the latter. So if you have an opportunity, and I imagine someday we'll get back to going through the ladder again, um, not the ladder, the conferences again, uh, to be able to read it then, but they're, they're superb. And, uh, and so I highly recommend it. And there's a wonderful English translation and as part of the Ancient Christian Writers series. Good question. Okay, Nathan writes. Uh, I was thinking that sometimes as we rationally reflect on these writings and concepts of ascesis or our various modes of living and ways of participating in, in the body of Christ, that it helps us to remember that all of our relations and practices are to participate with Christ's Trinity in the wooing of all back to intimate union of paradise and the kingdom, not so much discipline and effort but longing and love to restore full union between all and uh, those dear to God, I think is what you're saying there. Yes, uh, we've talked about this often in the sense of we don't see our life as Christians being embraced in isolation, that we are part of the body of Christ and that we desire the sanctification uh, of all uh, uh, that we come into contact, uh, not only through our witness, but th through the action of God's grace in their life, and through our encouragement uh, of them in the spiritual life as well. And ultimately, that is the end goal for us. The immediate goal, Cassian tells us, is purity of heart, but the ultimate goal is this union and communion with the Most Holy Trinity. And if ultimately we aren't seeking that, if our ascetic practices aren't rooted in desire, then they have no worth. You know, they might make us see ourselves as being disciplined, but it might not bear any more fruit than that. And 
we've talked about this before, but it's very interesting how in the Latin rite, the gospel that is chosen for Ash Wednesday is where Christ warns about this, that if you know, a person fasts in order to be seen by others and has his hair matted to his head and doesn't wash his face, looks miserable, then Jesus says he has his payment in full or his reward, his payment in full. So he's seen by himself and by others as being disciplined. But that is all that he receives because he's driven, again, not by the desire for God, but uh, to be seen as a holy individual. And the same thing he says about uh, alm, giving alms and praying. If all these things are done simply to be seen by oneself or others, then they are going to bear minimal fruit. That all that we do is to draw us back into the fullness of, of life with the Trinity. All right, we are on number 60. Someone told me of an extraordinarily high degree of purity. He said, a certain man on seeing a beautiful woman thereupon glorified the creator. And from that one look, he was moved to love of God into a fountain of tears. And it was wonderful to see how what would have been a cause of destruction for one was for another, the supernatural cause of a crown. If such a person always feels and behaves in the same way on similar occasions, then he has risen immortal before the general resurrection. And so he presents us here with the highest degree of purity of heart that in that which is beautiful, one can see the presence and the action of God. And so the individual who's pure of heart and is holy is not going to disdain that which is beautiful uh, 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 at all. In fact, is going to be able to see it with a greater clarity and, uh, and, and be able to praise and thanks God for it. And as we see here, even one who weeps tears over the beauty of it, that within every speck, of dust, where were we reading that from? If we, I don't know if it was from the Evergatinos or if it was from Climacus, where some of the saints could see within every speck of dust the, the presence and the glory of God, that the heart had become so purified, the eye of the heart was so free of impediment that they could see God present in all things. And ultimately, this would be our goal. And again, you know, if our goal is to foster a negative anthropology, you know, like, oh, you know, I can't look at that, you know, or, you know, she's, you know, this source of temptation for me. That's more of a reflection of our, of our impurity, of our lack of chastity, of our disordered love, uh, than certainly something that God would desire from us. That what God desires from us is that we would be able to see each other and the way that he sees us and that he's created us to see others and not to objectify uh, individuals or anything within this world, but to be able to, to, to see others as those uh, who we've been created to love and to love the things in creation that God has created and that are, are truly beautiful. 
And again, you know, we might never have tasted this level of purity that is described here. And it can be hard for us to imagine uh, a set of circumstances where that would be our reaction. But I think part of the reason that John puts it before us is, is, is in order that we might come to desire it, that we might have true, true freedom of heart to, to love without impediment. Uh, Rory writes, is there a presence of God in all people that can be seen? Absolutely. I mean, we are created in his image and likeness. And, uh, and no matter how far a person has moved away from God, there's always that light of love dwelling within them with which he's created them. And so we must never lose that capacity, even when we have a difficult time seeing it, of acknowledging that fact that we've been created in his image and likeness. And so never to look upon one with scorn, allow our hatred to be directed towards what has afflicted them, which is the temptation of the evil ones, of sin, of evil itself, how that's perhaps marred creation, but never to look at the individual with any sense of contempt. And again, this is where we are called to not simply a natural level of virtue, but supernatural, you know, to be able to see through uh, to the, the deeper realities, uh, not only in our own life, but in the life of others, to do what we were talking about on Monday, which was suspending judgment, that we don't see all ends as God does, and we don't see the fullness of the truth about others, even when what they do seems to be obvious to us on the surface. Uh, let's see here. Rachel writes, but perhaps it should be remembered that it is God himself that reveals himself in the other. That's true, uh, that uh, it's, you know, God is the source of, of life and love, and it is his spirit that dwells us in, within us and holds us in being. And uh, so, you know, we aren't the origin of that life or that beauty. It's God who's created it and uh, draws us to himself through it. Uh, Ashley writes, reminds me of a quote of Venerable Fulton Sheen. Wow, you must love Fulton Sheen. Uh, that's not a critique. I think he is an ex extraordinary individual and saintly in my mind. Uh, Dear Lord, what can we, thy followers, do to bring peace to the world? How can we stop brother rising up against brother and class against class, blurring the very sky with their cross-covered Golgothas? Thy first word on the cross gives the answer. We must see in the body of every man who hates a soul that was made to love. If we are too easily offended by their hate, it is because we have forgotten either the destiny of their souls or our own sins. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us for ever having been offended then we, like thee, may find among our executioners another Longinus who had forgotten there was love in a heart until he opened it with a lance. Wow, wasn't Fulton Sheen, he was ex extraordinary in so many ways that that still pierces the heart uh, to read it. And uh, his life of Christ, I still find myself go back to frequently as well as his writing about the priesthood 
uh, which I was surprised was never required reading when I was in seminary. And you think, goodness sake, that was it was one of the most it's clear articulations of the uh, of the beauty, but also the uh, the 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 sacrifice of priesthood uh, that I've encountered, and yet it wasn't required reading. Thank you, Ashley. Your your comments are always so timely and beautiful. Rachel writes that it, it is us who, in the meantime, patiently wait for him to reveal himself and grant this purity of heart. And until then, in all humility, know that we guard our senses and hearts. I only say this because it can be discouraging to find weakness so deeply rooted in our hearts. It's true. I mean, I think um, we can so easily be discouraged by this and drawn into a kind of despair and desolation and uh, to keep before our minds the mercy and compassion of God and so clearly that our daily meditation upon the cross is meant to draw us into that mercy and uh, to hold before our eyes the depth of God's love for us. It's not a kind of morbid, uh, sadistic uh, way that we treat ourselves by meditating upon uh, the, the crucifixion of our Lord, but rather something that opens us up to see the depth of that love and mercy. Uh, there was a religious sister who worked uh, with us in campus ministry, whose community in, in her community, she said the, the stations of the cross every single day of her life. And you think how formative that would be in terms of the, the uh, shape of one's mind, intellect, imagination, and the way that one would view Christ, and as well as view one's own sinfulness and poverty, as Rachel mentions here, that when we have uh, the passion before our eyes, ultimately what it should bring about is this extraordinary joy that as we are drawn into it, and perhaps even begin to participate in something of the sorrow of it, that ultimately what it brings us to is the joy of this reconciliation with God. What is revealed to us as we enter more and more deeply is, is, is that love, that self-emptying love of God. And uh, again, this is why I think some of the uh, devotions that uh, maybe have been set aside or de-emphasized would be uh, worth our taking up again with with great zeal, uh, and not just uh, episodically. I mean, like that nun, you know, having the stations of the cross. Not everybody might do that or feel called to do that, but it can bear enormous fruit. And with Fulton Sheen, you know, his life of Christ is very much like this. I don't know where Ashley got that quote. Uh, maybe she has it written down, but uh, it's there's a depth there. You can. In, he wasn't just a great intellect, you know, that there was a heart there that was really touched by the grace of God that gave him the capacity to see the mysteries of the life of Christ in this extraordinary way. Uh, a couple other comments here. Louise, at the traditional Latin mass, there's a beautiful prayer, Sanctus, 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 heaven and earth are full of your glory, alleluia. Right, calling upon the the holiness of God, uh, even within the the Novus Ordo, often, you know, we certainly pray that in English, but it's often done in Latin as well. 
Rory says, Jesus spoke of the Samaritan who helps the man on the road who was beaten as an example of how we are to treat our neighbors as ourselves, right? And, you know, I think we were talking about this the uh, other night about vul the vulnerability of love. And that in a day and age like ours, you know, I think when the violence, the aggression, uh, the that we see within the culture being even magnified by the media in some sense, too, that it can really fill our hearts with a kind of fear and anxiety and make us guarded uh, and approach others with a kind of suspicion, rather with a generosity uh, of spirit. And uh, uh, it's interesting, I don't know if you've ever seen those little videos where individuals will go up uh, to someone and ask them for a dollar for food. And, uh, and the response is often, you could see even in the posture of individuals. And I've had this experience too. There can be kind of withdrawing, uh, not only emotionally, but physically. And uh, it's hard as a priest too, because you're asked so often not to become jaded in that regard. When you hear the same stories over and over again, uh, not to move to this protective position. And uh, there's one priest I know who said, it's, it's better to err on the side of charity. So in a sense to be taken advantage of, and even if it's you know for a couple of dollars, that what does that mean to us ultimately? If we allow love or charity to trump whatever else is going on, there, uh, that, you know, we are, Christianity is going to be seen as foolish in the eyes of the world, you know, to be this vulnerable, uh, that we can even at times be taken advantage of. Now, there is kind of wisdom that we are to have in our actions and thoughtfulness, and, uh, but too often, I think our response is guided by a, a closed heart. Rachel writes, this was meant to be attached to the other comment. Okay. Ashley writes, that quote is either from the anthologies or from the little book of sermons. Uh, sorry, jump down. Of the last seven words, the seven capital sins, called, uh, it would be under the reflections of anger and wrath. Thank you. So I'm glad that's in the, the notes then of the podcast. Anthony writes, maybe it would help to distinguish the different meanings of sin in the Bible and the fathers. It seems to me that one meaning is our general inclination to evil. Another is entertaining what is wrong. Another is doing what is wrong. Another is mortal sin. These meanings maybe can get mixed up in our thinking about faith. Sometimes the meaning of sin, it seems univocal. Uh, but places like First John indicate that these are, there are a lot of meanings to sin. Absolutely. And uh, I don't want to pull that apart too quickly because John is actually going to do it for us, especially when he breaks down for us how temptation develops and how we are led into sin. And I think that might be uh, a better place for us to pull that apart. But I think you're, you're right in, in acknowledging the fact that uh, sometimes we, we fail to make the distinctions that we need to make in the spiritual life and we'll lump things uh, in one category. And I, th I think uh, 
you know, I, I've often discouraged being overly attentive to the distinction between mortal and venial sin in these groups because of some because of the ways that we often use it. But it is important. Distinctions are important to be able to make that there are sins that are rooted in our personal weakness, uh, our lack of strength or weakness of character on some level that are, are, are venial. And so understanding that can be important. Uh, I think what we find from the fathers, though, is that with any sin, we don't want to treat uh, something as less important, that we want to be attentive to everything that's going on within our heart, both the grave and, and, the, and the venial. But you're right. I think making the distinctions can be very important because otherwise, I think a person can sort of get lost in a hopelessness then about things that uh, aren't as grave as they imagine. We can often view ourselves with a harsher eye, certainly, than God views us. And more often than not, that's been my experience as a priest, that there can be a kind of self-contempt and self-hatred that emerges over time uh, that isn't reflective of how God would see an individual. But their experiences of life have created this self-image and self-identity that is often hard to overcome, no fault of their own. Rachel writes, what I was trying to touch upon was how we are supposed to see the other with of purity of heart. Emma Sinclatica prayed that her heart would be pure toward all. This got me thinking many years ago about what that means. The purity of heart that St. John Climacus is speaking of is something rarely ever spoken of because many are stuck on the surface or don't really know what, is tru what it truly means to objectify the other. It is not only speaking in terms of lust, but there can be many ways in which we only seek ourselves and so God will not reveal himself or we are incapable of seeing him and the other because our hearts have not been healed. Absolutely. I think part of our reason for seeking purity of heart is that one of the fruits of it is discernment, that it allows us to perceive things that are godly and of God, including the goodness of God in others. And so it's not only about uh, purity of heart is not only about sexuality or lust. I think in our minds, we've often made it that. And in some sense, then it's hobbled us in fostering this desire for it because it only seems to focus upon restraining a physical appetite. And in a day and age where that self-restraint on those levels is hard to present as something beautiful, uh, we are limited then in our teaching. Whereas if we teach and talk about purity of heart uh, as leading us then to have this deeper vision of the love of God and his love for us, or our capacity to see the goodness of the other, or to love them with a kind of freedom and lack of impediment, it opens up uh, a whole different way of viewing ourselves as human beings, but also of how we relate to each other. It's not just about restraining appetites, in other words. Uh, it often manifests itself, uh, especially in the beginning of the spiritual life there. Uh, but as one moves along and progresses, it, it really has to do with our ability 
to, to love with freedom. And, uh, you know, if we happen to know uh, there is the impediment of that on a physical level, it's because of our makeup as human beings. The very uh, things that make us capable of serving others and offering them tenderness and, and love can also be used in such a way to hurt and destroy them. Okay. Why don't we just move on a little bit here before we wrap it up for the evening. Uh, 61. Let us be guided by the same role in singing melodies and songs. For lovers of God are moved to gladness, to divine love, and to tears, both by worldly and spiritual songs, but lovers of pleasure to the opposite. So it's interesting here. You know, John is not... Uh, saying that we shouldn't listen to music. In fact, uh, music can speak to the depths of the soul and to elevate us. And he even says here, not only uh, sacred music or spiritual songs, but worldly ones that have to do with worldly subjects can elevate us uh, and our minds and our hearts to God and to love others in a deeper way. It's really that lack of purity of heart that can distort the way uh, that we listen to things or also distort the kind of music that we produce. And, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's something important to keep in mind because uh, we, again, we don't want to develop this kind of negativity that's closed off to that which is beautiful. You know, it's not only sacred music that is beautiful or that speaks to the soul. Uh, and the same thing with art. You know, there are, are many different things that elevate us in that regard. Number 62, as we have said before, some people in hermitages suffer more severe attacks from the enemy. And no wonder, for demons haunt such places since the Lord in his care for our salvation has driven them into the deserts and the abyss. Demons of fornication cruelly assail the Hezekist in order to drive him back into the world as having received no benefit from the desert. Demons keep away from us when we are living in the world that we may go on staying among worldly-minded people because we are not attacked there. Hence, we should realize that the place in which we are attacked is the one in which we are certainly waging bitter war on the enemy. For if we ourselves are not waging war, the enemy is found to be our friend. So, uh, interesting, you know, if, if we are waging war, we are going to be warred against. So wherever we live, you know, and whatever vocation we have, uh, if you're a married man or a married woman, or if you're living a single life or in the religious life, if you're engaging in the spiritual battle, you're going to be warred against with temptations. Uh, the place where you live isn't necessarily going to assist you in that regard. In fact, the solitude, the radical solitude of the anchorite is a place of greater and more severe battle. Uh, that because of the isolation, but the deserts have often be, been seen as the place of, of, of demons and where they dwell, these barren, this barren, these barren environments and where people will go in particular to do battle. 
or to engage in spiritual battle. And we see this in the life of Christ himself, uh, precisely there being uh, tempted by, by the evil one. And, uh, and so again, this is why one wouldn't quickly want to move to solitude, even though we, again, might daydream about that or uh, sort of idealize it, romanticize it as, as something that would allow uh, a greater spiritual depth. That's not necessarily so. We might be in an environment we, we feel is tearing us apart on a daily basis, that we're being embattled with one thought after another. And as long as that's not because we are involved in the company of those who are freely given over to that lifestyle, but because we are waging war, then we are right exactly where we need to be and not to be tempted to move away from it. Uh, that we stay and do battle where God has placed us, unless it becomes clear uh, according to his will, that we move to, to another place to do that. Okay. So just as a final note, I've often brought up St. Charbel in that regard. You know, it was years within the common life and living obedience, living in humility, uh, that when the, the hermit of the community died, he was... Uh, uh, made by the abbot, uh, the, the hermit for the community. And so goes to, off by himself to live in the hermitage. But the abbot warns everybody in the community as he's sending him off, this is not a reward. Do not think for a moment that it's a reward for good behavior kind of thing, that he's uh, going off to do greater spiritual battle. He's going off to uh, a place where he's probably going to be attacked all the more. And the only reason he's being sent there is the depth of his prayer and the depth of his obedience and humility. Now, well, there goes my cabin by the lake again. <laughs> Climacus dashes that week after week for me. Dirty rat. Okay, folks, so we'll, we'll wrap things up there for tonight. And uh, again, don't, uh, I know sometimes it is hard to formulate a question or comment quickly and type it out. So if you wanna bring back things the following week or send them along in an email, feel free to do so. You know, we're not limited just to this one hour, okay? So when we close as always with our Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.